Hey, Pierce, how Hello. are you doing? I am doing well. How are you, Mac? I'm doing pretty well. It's been sort of a chaotic week again, uh, but I'm getting through it. Yeah. Yep, uh, chaotic over here too. Uh, my big thing this week was trying to learn technology. So hopefully uh, my uh, camera and audio, especially my camera is better today. Thank you very much for that, by the way, helping out with that uh, from 800 miles away or however far away you actually are. Uh, what has been one of the big things for you this week? Uh, this week's been kind of blurry, but um, I can tell you one of the big things that's coming up for this week is we got D&D tonight. Oh, that's right. We do. <laughs> yes. Uh, that is going to be exciting. I think there are like 12 people in that game. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. But, uh, if you're playing the game at home, this is where we mentioned Brother Scott. Uh, yep. He's DMing and he does a great job. And I'm okay. actually really impressed with managing 12 people on one video call for a D&D game. Like that is, that is serious skill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it goes slowly in combat because it takes, you know, an hour to go around, but, um, <laughs> but everyone's like being efficient and they're staying kind of on task. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think what will improve it more for me too, is now that I get to know the other characters better, uh, there can be more side chat in the chat independently yes. of the game. And so that'll be fun. But, uh, yes, yeah, so that is coming up, yeah. but, uh, today we, uh, wanted to record, you had listened to a podcast. Yes. Um, what was that podcast again? It was, um, who it was, uh, was it conversations. What's that? Conversations with Bill Crystal. Yeah, that's what it was. And he had on as a guest, a guy named Arthur Melzer and about right. halfway into this, uh, interview talking about this guy's, it's not actually a new book. I think he wrote it a few years ago. Um, yeah, 2014. Yeah, but they're talking about the ideas in this book, and I thought, okay, I got to talk to Pierce about this. So I sent <laughs> yeah. you the link. What'd you think? And, uh, I listened to it. I actually subscribed to his podcast anyway, but I only listened to about a third of the episodes just because right, yeah. I only listened to so much. Um, it was great. It was a really great interview, um, and I'm impressed. Uh, I looked a little bit more into it, and I'm impressed by Arthur Melzer's research yeah the amount of data and i read a little bit more about it and now i appreciate more why he had to write it because we're going to get into it but from my perspective it's a little bit of duh of course uh okay no great insight but at the same time there are insights so right it was exciting for me right well how about yeah. um we uh explain what melzer's thesis is and what and what oh, this yeah. thing's about yeah, so the book's title, uh, you'll see me looking down at my notes, is Philosophy Between the Lines, The Lost History, and this is the key word here, of esoteric writing. And the basic idea is that there are two kinds of writing, exoteric and esoteric. And exoteric is the kind of writing that you, dear reader, probably read all the time, at least you think you do. Uh, and it's the stuff that is basically, it's, it is what it says it is. So right. you can imagine a uh, textbook saying, in this chapter, we investigate the division of the cell and how it blah, blah, blah. And the chapter ends, in that chapter, we investigated how the cell divided, blah, 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 blah. Most of the reading and writing that we do in the modern world is exoteric, is obvious, is not hidden doesn't have secret meaning. It's pretty clear, even when you read something like Harry Potter, it, the story is presented very clearly. Like yeah. here is the story. Um, esoteric, which I think has a negative connotation in today's world. Do you think so? Yeah, I, well, in writing, I think people get impatient with esoteria. Yeah, I can even imagine uh, my English teacher in college writing, this is too esoteric. <laughs> yeah um i think the only place esoteric is allowed these days is poetry yes and even That's then it. it's not as esoteric as allegorical or metaphorical it's not so much that there's hidden meaning it's that there's a deeper meaning you don't need a you don't need a, a decoder ring or a puzzle to figure it out 
Right. Yeah. Tell the truth, but tell it slant is not the same thing as saying tell the truth, but use it by saying something completely different that may even be opposite of the truth. Yes, exactly. Um, now, this is one of those subjects without, without, an, uh, without an example. It's really hard to talk about. So I'm going to give uh, first an example in literature, only because I love mentioning this book whenever I can. And that is Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Have you read that? Yes. Yeah. Jill and I read that a little over a year ago. That is, uh, it's a phenomenal book. And it, I'm not mentioning it because it's esoteric, but because it is, in my mind, the best modern book about esoteric books. And in yeah. that, these guys are going, getting these old random books that seem to be about almost nothing of meaning, but have mm -hmm. hidden inside them a secret code that if you unlock, you learn all sorts of mysteries. Uh, and that's the idea behind the thing. Right. And it's sort of the, what esoteric writing was thought to be. Uh, another example of esoteric writing in a more practical and real sense is in Machiavelli's The Prince. Right. So I love The Prince. I think it's a great book. People even use the word Machiavellian to mean a politician or leader or ruler or coach who's manipulative, right. uh, tricks people, rules by fear and deception. And that's how you are Machiavellian. Because and, and to Machiavellian, be fair, there are a lot of people that called themselves Machiavellians who were followers of his writing that fit that description because they were only reading the surface of what he wrote. Exactly. Um, and now this is an, this next part. If you are a philosophy major and you have read The Prince, please do not be upset at me because you <laughs> read it exoterically. But uh, Machiavelli was writing at a time where it was sort of the beginning of the age of reason. You can think the beginning of the Renaissance in the middle of the Renaissance. And there are all these Italian princes ruling these city-states. And they tended to rule them in irrational ways by their whim, by their mere desire, sometimes for good reasons, like they had good motive, but they did stupid stuff all the time. And so Machiavelli wrote a book that he's basically saying, hey, if you want to be in charge, a rational way of doing things is this way. You right. manipulate people that way. Fear will get you more than love because of these rational reasons. And he sort of gives a rational argument for why you should behave in a particular way, which is where we get the idea that you should be manipulative and scary and right. authoritarian, et cetera. Whereas, what, oh yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, so, so the, but Machiavelli's actual goal was uh, if, if Medici's and these other rulers were ruling more rationally, that would result in less suffering at the common level. Exactly. That's well, like, maybe not the common level, but certainly at his level. At his level. Okay, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he was middle class well, yeah. level. <laughs> right. But the, exactly. The idea being that if he could get them to be more rational, even for terrible selfish reasons, then they would be better. Right. And he wouldn't pretend that they're going to be wonderful, saintly people. Uh, he thinks, well, this is the kind of person that ends up in charge of a city state. So, hey, if you're that kind of person. So he has a secondary reason. And that's why even reading The Prince now, if you don't realize his secondary reason, you might think that this Machiavelli guy is a horrible human being and that his advice is terrible. But if instead you think, wait, he's just explaining what works. Now it's, oh, so this is the means even to a good end. Right. And it adds a layer and a depth of meaning to everything that he said. A couple of other examples I want to throw out there of yeah. modern books that address this idea of esoteric writing um, are two books by Umberto Eco. Uh, have you read Name of the Rose or uh, Foucault's Pendulum? Um, I've read Foucault's Pendulum. I've seen the movie Name of the Rose. Okay. Which I actually think it was probably pretty good, but yeah. I like well, the movie. Yeah, the, the book has a ton more going on in the movie, which you know, you'd expect, but doubly so compared to other books in the movies. The, the book, Name of the Rose, has passages that are written in other languages. And, the, and you know, a, a central theme there is this hidden uh, text, uh, this hidden mm -hmm. work of philosophy. Um, Foucault's Pendulum, I think, is an even better example. Uh, but Umberto Eco, the author of both, is kind of obsessed with the idea of esoteric writing. 
he's a semiologist yeah. himself. So he studies symbolism. Uh, and for those who haven't read it, Foucault's Pendulum, the plot is there are these people who run kind of a vanity press and they do a lot of business charging people to publish books on like the occult and conspiracy theories and, and stuff like that. And they, they put together a, a program that it's basically software that digests all these other occult uh, loony books and then spews out original material based off of it. And it's complete and total nonsense. And it immediately embroils them in this horrible deep conspiracy where all these different secret societies are after them. Um, and uh, it, one of, uh, of Echo's points in the book, as I understand it, there are a lot of different ways of reading it, is, well, he's in part kind of going after postmodernism and its attempt to mm. say that you can read whatever meaning you want into a text and it's valid. Um, but he's also kind of making a statement in general about uh, the, I think, the, the dangers of esoteric writing that doesn't follow rules. And if you mm. just start playing willy-nilly with symbols, then you, you, can, you can create nonsense that the world's still going to take very seriously because those symbols have power in themselves. So it's a little bit outside of Melzer's topic, but for people that are interested in this subject and are intrigued by esoteric and exoteric writing, I strongly recommend both those books. So they're yeah, kind of tomes. I may have to actually read Name of the Rose now um, because that definitely comes out in the book or in the movie, I should say. Um, but you can't really portray it in the movie because it's just a bunch of monks looking for books. Yeah, the movie's fun. It's a Sean Connery movie. It's a medieval murder mystery, the way it plays out in the movie. Uh, and yeah, there is that manuscript that people That's are at. That's the plot, but, or the MacGuffin is the thing. The Lost oh, so, Dialogues of Plato, I think it was. Yeah, so let me give an example of a movie that I think is truly esoteric All right. uh, in a good way. Um, and that is Pitch Black by with uh, Vin Diesel. I don't know I if you've seen, seen that movie. So Vin in Diesel that movie, is esoteric? I don't know if Vin Diesel is, but the movie is esoteric in a good way. Um, you know, I feel we've had this conversation. We're weird people. <laughs> but anyway, what I was saying is that Vin Diesel is a prisoner and he's on this planet and it's pitch black and there's no darkness, but he can see in the dark because he's had some weird sci-fi surgery. Who cares, right? Um, and there are these creatures that are afraid of the light that you almost never see throughout the whole movie. And they're always on the edge, on the shadows. And he's trying to get a group of prisoners to a safe harbor, a safe ship, in order to basically rescue himself. He's only looking out really for himself. Okay. There's a female in the group with them whose name is Trinity. And she is trying to rescue the prisoners. And he is one of the prisoners really just trying to rescue himself. Okay. And through the journey, they sort of have this argument. And by the end, she gives up her life. She dies for the sake of Vin Diesel's life. And so Vin Diesel feels like he needs to take on her charge and rescue the rest of the prisoners, and he does. So now, is, this is esoteric. And is yeah. it really esoteric or is it just allegorical? So allegory can be esoteric. What makes something esoteric, at least according to Melsner and some others, yeah. but we're gonna go with Melsner, is that they have an agenda or a meaning that they're purposely hiding for one of four reasons that we'll get to in a minute. Mm -hmm. In this movie, the writer and the producer and some of the actors all openly acknowledge outside of the movie, but in other interviews, that this is a Christian Christ allegory. Right. That this is about Jesus Christ. But, it's, but it was never and promoted or advertised or sold as such. No, because, and they say this, we don't think a Christian allegory would sell if people knew it was a Christian allegory. But if it's just an action movie, sure, people will do it. And that way they can sneak in this message that self-sacrifice and taking on, taking up somebody else's sacrifice as your own is an inherent good. And that's a and great so illustration. to promote. What? Uh-oh. Can I hear you now? Uh, my internet connection is unstable. Can you hear me oh. okay? Yeah, I can. Yeah. I had a hiccup in my net connection. 
Um, I was just saying that that, that was one of the four. Oh, no. Yes, uh, that is one of the four uh, that relates to one of the four ways esotericism. I don't know. I, I'm going to wait. Stevie comes back. Are you back? I can see you. All right. Could you hear me? Yeah. You never skipped as far as I could tell. Okay. Well, then I'm just going to go forward. So yeah, so there are four reasons for esotericism, according to Melzer. And if you're following along, I'm very proud of you. This is kind of esoteric. No, it's not. <laughs> but so there are four reasons uh, that someone might hide the true meaning of a work of fiction or nonfiction. Uh, and I'll just go through them really quickly. Uh, and then I'd love to get your thoughts on the four. So the first is fear of persecution. Like right. you can imagine someone doesn't want to be persecuted by a, a prince in Italy. So he doesn't write a book saying, you guys are idiots, you should be more rational. Instead, he says, here's how to be a better person. Or right. if someone's Christian and they work in Hollywood, they don't want to be persecuted as a Christian and think, oh, you dumb religious person. So fear of persecution, that the truths themselves are dangerous. And that's sort of protective esotericism. That's where we can get more into it, but that's where you're afraid that if you put the ideas out there, that the ideas might damage society. And so you don't think the society's ready for it. You don't think that you can just tell the truth openly because the truth may be itself rejected. We can talk a little bit more about that. Yep. Uh, then pedagogical esotericism, which is where you're being esoteric in order to have a better impact on people aesthetically. It's just an aesthetic way of doing something. You know, making a movie pitch black is going to be more appealing to people, delightful, than just telling people a Christian allegory. Right. Uh, and then the last one is uh, political esotericism. And that's related to that educational one. And that is, you're actually trying to change things. You're being esoteric with a specific agenda. And these aren't mutually exclusive or jointly right. exhaustive. But these are sort of some of the reasons that people might write or create art in an esoteric way. Right. And, and so Melzer's uh, thesis is, or let me back up. In general, people who study philosophy all acknowledge that there are some philosophers throughout time who have written esoterically. Um, yes. All the mystics were considered to be in general esoteric writers. But Melzer's contention is that it's not just every era you've got some esoteric guys so much as esoteric writing was the standard for at least philosophical writing, if not a lot of other kinds of writing, going all the way back to the dawn of philosophy and writing and continuing forward all up to uh, sometime near the middle or the end of the uh, Enlightenment. Yeah, I would say that's accurate for about 2,500 years. Uh, it's not just that esoteric writing was there, but that it was a dominant style. And he actually has an appendix to his book that he couldn't publish with the book that is available so online. Big. Yeah, and it's small print and it's 110 pages long and it is exhaustive and unavoidably like, wow. Our viewers are leaning in forward now. Wow, a massive appendix I can download? That's right, oh, I thought it was cool. But if you're the kind of person that says, well, but Aristotle wasn't a, an esoteric writer. Ah, he has evidence. Yeah. Plato, obviously, more so, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on through the ages with Descartes, who's supposed to be a serious rationalist, Thomas Aquinas, who's supposed to be more of a rationalist, mm -hmm. Diderot, all these Enlightenment thinkers, even they talk about esotericism uh, and even use esoteric writing in their Enlightenment writing, which I think is fascinating. Um, so yeah, that it's a dominant style. And he's got a further point. Um, he actually wrote a paper called uh, The Pedagogical Motive for Esoteric Writing. And in that paper, he's basically saying, we university professors and Western people and Americans in general should write and teach with esoteric tools more often. Hmm. Not just that this was something that was used in the past, but it was useful and we've lost something by not doing it anymore. So it's not just so much that it was the dominant way of doing it, 
but that we've lost something by not doing it anymore. And more importantly, we've lost something by not realizing that all these people in the past wrote in an esoteric way. Right. So, so I, I want to ask you two questions um, and you can answer yeah. them any order you want. The first one is, I mean, I've studied philosophy, but you, you were a philosophy. Yeah, I was a philosophy major. To be and looking at yeah. like the grand scope of philosophy in a way that I haven't. So my first thought question is a short one. And that is, uh, do you buy Melzer's thesis? Do you think, do you think that he's correct? Um, and then the second one, uh, we have uh, B. Acronics in chat who uh, asks, and I think we know who this is. Uh, so yeah. what, what is supposed to expose the true meaning for those who are supposed to understand the hidden meaning? Or is it supposed to uh, be kind of osmosed by the audience without them really seeing the true meaning? Okay, so that was an excellent question. So let me answer yours first, because it's easier. Yeah. I basically buy his argument, especially okay. when I read a paper of his where it wasn't just an interview, I could really delve into it. And that is that he's not saying that this is the way, but that it is a dominant way, one of the major ways. And that if you don't think about it, you're going to miss a lot. And that, that, it was, that implies that a lot of people that are studying philosophy today are misunderstanding what they're reading. Well, in the philosophy world today, there is uh, the, ten, the tendency to read is called historicism. Right. And that is to read things according to their context. So it's not so much that Machiavelli was writing a secret thing. It's that if you understand Machiavelli's historical context, then you can understand what he was trying to say. But right. that doesn't but, give Machiavelli personally enough credit to know his own context. Well, and, and it can actually completely, purpose. it can, it can completely mislead you too, because sometimes the, the way the esoteric writing works is the author would intentionally behave as if he's in concert with his times and a way to yeah. hide the okay. fact that he's actually saying something that's, that's really kind of revolutionary. And so yes, and this gets to the, que the second question, which is how are we supposed to understand what's the true meaning? Right. And a great example of that is in Plato's Republic near the very beginning. Uh, you probably, if you're watching, you probably were exposed to Plato's Republic. And uh, if you were exposed in a cursory way, you might've thought, this is stupid. Does he really think that this would be an ideal society? At yeah. the very beginning of Plato's Republic, when he's beginning, when Socrates and his, Socrates' friend that Plato's writing about are beginning to talk about this stuff, um, Socrates uses the, and you would agree that merchants are usually like this, right? He said, yes, usually. And then the rest of the thing continues as if merchants were always like that. Mm. And that's Plato's little wink and a nod like, saying, I know this isn't really possible. But assuming the ideal, here's what it would be, because then we can change the reality for the ideal. Right. He's letting you in on a secret at the beginning that he doesn't take himself totally seriously, that this is just a thought experiment. But a lot of people thought, well, Plato believed that philosophers should have this own class. No, it's a thought experiment that he was messing around with in a book. That's different. So, so maybe a, a way to summarize the answer is that um, in at least... signal to, to look for the hidden meaning. Yeah. Sort of um, like in, in the Bible itself, uh, which is, you know, written by correspondences, has an internal meaning and all these different representatives. And yet there are places where we'll just plainly say, make statements like, um, your doctrine is the rain and, right. uh, or statements like the Lord never spoke except by a parable. That's like hint, hint, the whole thing's a parable. You got to read it that way. Right, or uh, uh, from the Psalms, listen to a parable, a tale of old, and then they tell you the book of Exodus in brief. Right. Implying that the book of Exodus is a parable, at least as yep. it was told in the Psalms, which is itself pretty amazing. It's not just what Jesus spoke, but anything could be a parable. Yeah, but yeah. that leads to the problem of esoteric yes. writing. And I'm guessing this might be one of our listeners, uh, the guy who wrote in might have been critiquing so if you're supposed to use a code buried in the text or perhaps some other code, like, like maybe Plato is writing, assuming you read these other people, and if you had read these other people, then you'd know really what he's talking about. The problem with that is that you can read anything into any text that way. Yeah. 
So as soon as you say it's written in an esoteric fashion, that's why it really means something totally different. It's yeah. sort of unfair. Yeah. And that's the problem with scripture and esoteric re reading. Uh, well, that people could see, well. I would say that's the problem with many esoteric readings of scripture. And what makes the Swedenborgian approach so interesting to me is that it has a rigor to it that other mystic readings of the Bible don't have in that there is a set of fixed rules of interpretation. Yeah, now at this moment, I wanna be mindful of the fact that some people watching might not know who Swedenborg is. Yes. Um, and might not know what the new church interpretation of the Bible is. And I don't think we can go into it in depth here. That would be another hour, yeah. Yeah, but it is really worth thinking about. Um, on that, so I want to talk about a little bit about, like you said, it's in the text itself. And you can use a certain amount of intellectual rigor to test your own knowledge of it. And I think one of the problems with man-made esoteric writing is that it's not it's not going to be rigorous in people's study of it. Because while Plato is interesting, and even Thomas Aquinas and even all these other people, they're not important enough that we have to get it right. Because people aren't basing rockets to the moon. They're not basing their entire value system off of what Plato said. At least today people aren't. Which is why you don't want to have esoteric writing explaining how to go to the moon, because you'll kill right. astronauts. Yeah. But when you start basing a value system off of something that it was written esoterically, that becomes dangerous because then you can interpret any value out of that and say, God said so. And this becomes why I think some people don't like to say that the Bible has a hidden meaning or an esoteric writing style. Because yeah. then you could say anything. Well, so I have a different issue with esoteric writing, uh, not specifically <laughs> with scripture, but just in general. Um, and this is sort of a love-hate thing. Like I, for years, I've been fascinated not only by uh, symbolism in, in sacred texts, uh, Gnosticism, all that stuff. I've been fascinated by it. And at the same time, the, the more I, I delve into esoteria, the stronger the impression in my mind grows that kind of elitist, like there, there's a built-in assumption that what I have to say is only for certain ears. Um, yeah. And yes, I'm aware of sort of the irony of that echoing the he who has ears to hear, let him hear uh, in the New Testament. And for some reason, I don't have a problem with it in, in the New Testament, but uh, the idea that all philosophers were writing these, these things that they knew most people weren't going to get. Right. It, it, so I'm, I'm a professional communicator. It's what I, that, that's, if I had to define what I am and look at all the different roles that I, I play, I am a communicator. And for me, being a successful communicator means having a clear idea and system of ideas around it, communicating in a clear way so it can be understood in a way that, that also appeals to people's affections so it results in changed behavior or action, either improving their life, improving society. And in my mind, that only works when you're extremely democratic about how you communicate. Because if you really wanna make a difference, people have to understand you. And the idea that you know, the, really, the really smart stuff is, is put in code so only the smart people get it, um, I don't know, that, that rubs me wrong. And I suspect <laughs> that that's, that itself is a product of the culture I grew up in. And that, that might not be an objective value that I should be holding to, but it, that is an emotional reaction I have. So I think we have to talk about um, the most famous esoteric philosopher, I think that, that has ever lived. And that's Socrates, who didn't technically write anything down. Uh, most of what we know about him, Plato reported, but other people did too. And what he would do is what's called the Socratic method, which was he would wander around Athens asking people really annoying questions. He would never give people a straight answer. Um, he would always hint that there was a deeper answer or that he was getting to something. And the good people of Athens found him so annoying that they tried him, found him guilty and told him to commit suicide. 
So they found him obnoxious and annoying too. Yes. <laughs> and the fascinating thing is that he actually drank the poison. Yeah. And if you, now there are different interpretations as to why. I'm of the opinion that it was because he was a humble person. He genuinely said, I think he genuinely believed that the unexamined life isn't worth living. And he believed that he did not have all the answers. That he was asking you questions, not because he knew the answer, but because he didn't know the answer. Right. And he didn't think you did either. Plato would suggest that there is this ideal up here and that nobody has a clear idea of the ideal. People think they do. Right. What we see is down here. As soon as you pretend to say that you know the ideal, which is to speak with more clarity than he would like, then you're being arrogant or what he would call it hubris. You're thinking that you're like one of the gods. Okay. I'll give an example. I'll give an example of this, not from scripture, but in stories. If I write a short story and for sake, for uh, just for artist's sake, it's about a dog named Lassie and a boy named Timmy. And I write a little story and it's about Timmy playing at the well to go back to an old thing. And as I'm writing it, I'm thinking the reason why I'm writing this story is because I want kids to know they shouldn't play at wells. And that's why I'm writing it. And I, but I write it esoterically. And at the end, I never say that you see, you see Timmy. I just leave it at the story of the dog rescued the boy and the boy came back, hugged his mother and the mother hugged the dog. And it was a loving moment. Later, other people could read that short story and they could say, oh, this story, it's, yeah, it's about a boy and his dog, but it's really about the loyalty that one should have towards one's friends. And you need to sacrifice for your friends. That's what it's really about. That's the esoteric meaning that they read into it. I would be arrogant to say that they were wrong because I just told a story in the world of forms. I just told a story with imagery <laughs> that was real. And yeah, I had an ideal in mind. I had no esoteric reason, but because I stayed down here in the ground, I was able to contain more meaning than I was even aware of. I like that. Well, and in particular, I just gave a talk last week uh, on a different channel about doubt and certainty. Um, and there I was talking about how I don't like certainty. Certainty always seems kind of arrogant to me. So so I don't know which is more arrogant, having the, the certainty to speak clearly or the elitism to only speak to the, the educated you know, fellow elite. Well, you, I, remember having an argument with, yeah, I remember having an argument with a friend about Star Wars. This is when the episode one had just come out. Uh -huh. So Jar Jar Binks and all of that. Yeah. And we were arguing, and I think I was wrong at the time, but we were arguing about what Jedi actually are. Ah. And they were giving me this very new church Christian idea of what a Jedi is and about lightness and darkness. And I was basically saying, yeah, but George Lucas didn't say so. He said this, this, and this. So that's what Jedi actually are. And he turns to me and he says, he's wrong. <laughs> like He can't be wrong. It's his stuff. And he said, no, George Lucas didn't invent Star Wars. He discovered it. And then he ruined it. <laughs> I was like, you're crazy. But the more I think about it, the more I think he's got a point. That well, especially Star Wars is an esoteric myth. And well, it has deeper meanings that the writers don't know. Monomyth. Yeah, but also once you create a work of art, the meaning, and this is very postmodern, but the meaning is the communication of the person consuming the art, reading it, watching it, viewing it, hearing uh, it. I'm going to say, I'd say I agree with that only bounded slightly um yeah the, okay. a, a a purely hypothetical lunatic who reads uh, an episode of lassie and announces it's all about the glory of cheese sandwiches i think is objectively wrong. <laughs> yeah well that gets back to our questions question our questioner's question which is how do you put limits on it and and this is one of the things what i think is why you should not base your value system off of star wars and if you do dear watcher <laughs> don't do that because but you can get okay anything you want. Value have. system off of the Bible. Yes, I think so. And, and um, well, that's now we're talking about the difference between representatives uh, or appearances uh -huh. and genuine truth. 
or the difference between face and hands and the veil and the clothing. And uh, yeah, but so what do you think? Why do you think you, sh you can base your value system on the Bible? Especially I'm, if it's written I'm not so much you, in an esoteric way. Well, you haven't totally convinced me that you can't base your value system on Star Wars. Um, I think you can get pretty far uh, with like a canon of Star Wars, The Simpsons and The Office. Uh, Only if you grew up in a Judeo-Christian world. Well, yeah, that's like saying that, that Christianity only makes sense if you include the Old Testament. Well, it does. <laughs> well, I um, did, so that works for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, there's no way I I'm, I'm, I'm going to convince somebody who, who grew up in Thailand that uh, the office contains wisdom. Uh, but for me, it does. There's post yeah. for you. Yeah, okay, well... I'm going to let you base your lifestyle off of Star Wars if you really want to. I'll warn you, though. Well, I don't want to. I just think you could. And you oh, so the reason why far. I think it's dangerous. No, but here's the reason, though, because because Star Wars is intentionally built on the monomyth, as George Lucas interpreted um, that whole theory. And I believe that the monomyth itself has its has its root in real spiritual truth. Um, and if you want to yeah. take a Swedenborgian angle to it, you can talk about, you know, fallen most ancient, ancient churches, lost ancient words, that kind of thing. And, but I think anybody who, who tries to faithfully follow the monomyth is going to, whether intentionally or not, produce something that contains values that you can, in fact, build your life around. Um, I think How to Train Your Dragon is a great example of a film that you could uh, very easily derive uh, a pretty reasonable society from because it is so faithfully following that monomyth. Okay, so uh, we're, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of the fact value problem. Okay, um, yep. but that's a fun conversation. I do wanna, yes, it is. But I do want to talk about uh, another friend, uh, Lyle's, uh, his brick theory of philosophy. Okay. And that is a philosophy is only as good as it is able to dodge a brick. So if he throws a brick at your face and you don't dodge, then your philosophy is useless. <laughs> like, is that a brick? Is the brick real or is it merely, bah, ah! <laughs> it's useless, <laughs> dodge the brick. <laughs> and I think that that actually speaks to me about certain values that you may derive from Star Wars, from other things, is that we come to these things with certain base assumptions that are that I get into the fact value problem another time, but assumed values that we value before we get to the work of art or the document or whatever it is. So someone isn't actually basing their life off of Star Wars. They love certain ideals. They see those ideals in Star Wars. And so they use Star Wars as a way of giving structure to those ideals that they love. But they came with those loves before Star Wars. Maybe Star Wars guided and strengthened those loves, but they have a certain value that they want to see. And that's but, why they can base it I, off of Star Wars. I think what you're describing all, all, would also fit the casual Christian. I think there are yes. a lot of people that, that, that see values they already hold in the teachings of one or another Christian denomination and say, okay, that's true because I believe it, rather than yep. I believe it because it's true. And so that... There's a difference between that and deciding to hold something as an authority. And I think you could hold the canon of Star Wars as an authority. I think it would be a mistake too. Um, yeah. Well, when you're holding any work as an authority, uh, Max cutting out for me again, and I wonder if it's my fault. I can um, hear. Yeah. But when you're holding oh something as an authority, you're going to have to check yourself off of those core values over and over again. For instance, for me, the Bible has the Ten Commandments. And I use that as a check on anything else I try to interpret from the Bible. I, you know, I'm a preacher. I take stories from the word, from the Bible, and I expound on what I think they're meaning for our lives and what they're telling us about our relationship to the Lord. They're never going to say, you shall murder. Go ahead and commit adultery. Stealing's all right. You know, lying, ah, you know, maybe. They're never going to say that. They're never going to contradict for me the Ten Commandments or the Two Great Commandments, love the neighbor and love the Lord. Right. So there are these core values that for me are a check on all the other things I may read into something. Right. And it's, and those, then that check is in the document itself and in the document itself, the Bible, 
are things that point back to it, back to saying, hey, if you're going to look for deeper meaning or for other meanings, here are clear statements that you right. can find yourself that should it help you not mess up anything else you do. Okay. I don't think Star Wars does that in the same way. Well, I think one of the, the differences between specifically the canon of Star Wars and the Christian canon is that the Christian canon contains narrative works, but it also contains expository doctrinal works, which are direct commands and teachings. Um, yes. And the canon of any mythology usually is just presenting the narrative portion. Yeah. And that is a, a tricky thing. So this, this has me wondering, to get New Church speaky again, whether or not the yeah. word had doctrine. I don't know if there's a way to get an answer to that. And by that, I mean like direct teaching. Even, even though it was all written by means of representatives. Yeah, I don't know. I, maybe that's a bad question because there's not really much we can do with that. Well, I don't know. But I do think about this with stories and values. I think, I actually think that the Lord innately gives everyone an affection for truth, for divine truth. Yeah. Uh, I and I think what that means is that we do actually have innate good values um, that are very unformed and are very kind of messy. I think that we're more inclined to evils of every kind and are basically self centered and selfish. But we also have an aspect of ourselves that inherently aspires to these good things. And that when we run into them, they ring true. Right. So thou shall not murder just sings. And right. it goes bong. And in your head, you go bong. Oh, that's, that's not just a, an idea, but that's important. Yeah, the, the way uh, think, uh, Swedenborg writes it is uh, the ability to see truth in its own light is something all humans have regardless of intellect, knowledge, experience. And I believe even more so that the sensory world contains those truths inherent to it, which means uh, when you put a character in a black helmet with a mechanical voice and a big billowing cape with dark lighting and a red glowing saber, he's the bad guy. And whatever right. he says is bad guy stuff, independently of the script and all this other stuff. And that a lot of the reason why Star Wars works, especially the original trilogy, is because of the lighting and yep. because of the motifs. It's the stuff on the ground. It, it gets back to that point about the story, if it's grounded in those, those images or in the correspondences, in the, in the things that are hard mm -hmm. down here, then the truth that is ideal can flow in, even if George Lucas doesn't even know what he's doing. If he doesn't know anything about the, the monomyth, the fact that he's got a character all in dark with a red sword, with a mechanical voice and a billowing cape who's mean and scary, right. that's going to tell us stuff. And, and nowadays- In fact, he calls it the light in the dark. Nowadays, it's yeah. very, very popular in all forms of fiction to intentionally subvert that. Like, yeah. um, I'm going to leave the TV series aside, but the, the novels uh, in The Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones and all that, one of the, the, the principal points that Martin- is trying to make is that often the pretty people are evil and the ugly people are the ones who are somewhat noble. Yes, and that is true in reality as well. Um, but we even can sense that uh, just by when you say it. Um, well, but see, I wonder if the, the postmodern or post-postmodern love for the anti-hero and for the subverted trope and for the good guy wears black and the bad guy wears white and all that is somehow or another corrosive or damaging long-term for society's health. I'm not saying that it is, but I wonder if it might be. Um, I do worry about that. That gets back to my point where I just use it as a warning. I wouldn't base your, I wouldn't base your philosophy off of Star Wars, your worldview or your way of living or your value system or figuring out whether right. or not you should marry someone or how, whether or not you can divorce someone or whether or not you should spank your kids or not spank your kids. Like there's some actual real mechanical things you have to decide in life. 
right. that matter a lot. Well, but so you say, I wouldn't it. base my life on these things, but you know, st forget Star Wars, just popular culture in general. People do base their lives off of things that they derive from the, the popular art around them. Right, well, I was saying is I wouldn't from Star Wars and I really wouldn't from Breaking Bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like Breaking Bad is a good example of what I think of is esotericism gone wrong. Or another way of putting it is, um, what would you call it? No, you know what? I like esotericism gone wrong because really, and I was not a, a big watcher of Breaking Bad, but I'm familiar with it in outline. The, the premise was this person's becoming worse. He's, it, it, this is a path into darkness. And for some of the audience, there was an appeal in it that was, I don't think the intended appeal as the show was originally designed. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a modern equivalent, uh, modern, as if that's not modern, a current equivalent in The Tiger King. Most people watch The Tiger King, and I haven't watched it because I could That should be another spot on the bingo card now that we're, we're in the, the world oh. of Tiger King COVID binging. Oh, Tiger King. But for me, Tiger King is uh, offensive, and I actually think it's a force for evil in the world. Yeah. I think that 98% of the people watch Tiger King and think, this guy's a moron. And a percentage of them think, this guy's evil. Yeah. I also think there's 2% who's thinking, yeah, I want to do that. That's how I'm going to base my life. I'm going to be a tiger person. I might and be lower that, than 2%, but, I, I, but I'm concerned with even a fraction of a percent. Well, a very large, a larger percentage of people believe dumb things more often than other people. I know. And the first thing that popped in my head as soon as I finished speaking was that one out of every three Americans believe this, that Elvis is still alive somewhere. So, Exactly. That's a perfect example. Now, I don't care if he's alive or not, but I really care that people don't base their life off of Tiger King. And so I feel it is my duty to tell people, hey, watch out for the media you consume because it will influence you and you don't necessarily know what. So I guess I'm a little bit prudish that way. Um, so, I, so those kinds of things actually kind of make me nervous. I have friends and family who watched Breaking Bad and I'm not worried about them it influencing their lives mostly. But in as much as it glorifies essentially somebody who is part of one of the worst epidemics going around in America today, and that is the opioid crisis, that's, that's bad news. Yeah. Like this guy is, 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 is sick, he's sad, he needs help, he needs jail. Like this, there's nothing glorious or funny about it. This is really bad news. So yeah. So, can I change the subject a little bit? Yes, please. You know, I how long have we been on? Uh, a long time. Let me look. This is about an hour. Um, but I got to ask this question. So, so you you accept Melzer's thesis that uh, philosophical writing, it was more of the rule than the exception uh, that people were writing esoterically all the way up to and including uh, Enlightenment writers. Um, would you say, at least with regard to his philosophical works, if not the theological works, would that uh, be applicable to the writing of Emanuel Swedenborg? Uh, no, I think that he is very clearly not an esoteric writer. Okay, but, that, that, that's my intuition too, but like, how would you defend that point? Uh, he says so. So, <laughs> Um, and I really do think that matters. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's one thing for someone to say, I'm being clear. It's another thing for someone to say, I acknowledge that some of the most important things ever written are esoteric. One of my goals is to try and make them clear. And that's what he was saying. Now, right. Well, and one of the that thought, he also wrote a bunch of stories. Was, his writing was too simple and he just owned that and said, okay. And, and yeah. I, I, I now have sort of come around to understand that that in part may be talking about the fact that people were expecting some sort of esoteric wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And he was just sort of going at it like a bull. You know, here's what yeah. I'm saying. Yes, this is not, uh, what's that obnoxious prophet? Um, uh, Jeremiah? No, no, no. He's not a real Elisha? prophet. No, they're both real prophets. No, this is a guy Yeah, but they're also obnoxious. Prophet. I mean, Yeah, no, this is a medieval guy that everyone thinks um, um, you know, oh, he predicted what? 
Am I'll, I I'll remember it later. No, people are screaming at their screens right now. Um, <laughs> he's very, he That's was very popular. We have. He was very popular in the 90s. He was a medieval? Uh, oh, oh, um, right. Orson Welles did the, the spell right. about him. Um, and, and he was actually writing esoterically about the, about, uh, French court intrigues, I and mean, we've all interpreted it as 9-11 prophecies. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't even remember. But the point is that people thought that the second coming or the next prophet would be like that guy. Right. And I really like that it's actually just a super nerdy scientist guy who says, you know, when the Bible said love your neighbor, it really, really means love your neighbor. Really. And a whole message, it's all about loving the Lord and loving the neighbor. And that's the hidden meaning. I love that that's the secret meaning. <laughs> like, love your neighbor. <laughs> oh, my camera just died. Oh, did it? Which means, well, my battery did. Oh, well, then I guess we're at the end of our time. <laughs> <laughs> you know why we're, you know why my battery dies? Because I was about to Because you spent so much it. time trying to get it uh, hooked up earlier today. Yeah. Did you cut the feed or are we still alive? Uh, we're still live um, because your voice is still coming through. You're just looking very surprised and excited. Um, but I think maybe that we can just wind it up. You can be just voice yeah. only. Well, what I was going to say is uh, I think that uh, the reason why it died for me. Oh, look, now I'm in low. Now I'm not. Is because I was about to reveal the secret truth. Oh, and, it was uh, an esoteric move. Okay. The universe wanted to hide that. Well, you'll have to tune in next time. <laughs> Also, okay. well, you know, this has Mac, been a great conversation, um, Pierce. Do you, do you have any like final thoughts you want to put on it? Yeah, we had an outline and we totally didn't follow it. And we we're going to go into these four reasons. We didn't talk about it. There's all I this know. great stuff we we're going to say. That's so. that's so so charge your battery and we can maybe pick up this conversation uh, next time. And that way we don't have to do any new research for a new topic. Yeah. And I think that next time you should talk more uh, and maybe we get a better internet connection too. Yeah, yeah. The the connection here has been bad all all day. I think, I think it's got coronavirus. But yeah. <laughs> all right then. All okay. Right, well, well that's that, that's it uh, for us. Uh, just want to say, if you enjoy this kind of nonsense, uh, please subscribe to my channel here, or if you're watching it on Pierce's channel, where the recording will be posted, uh, subscribe to his channel or subscribe to both. Um, and uh, share this with other people. Um, if, if you thought this was interesting, the odds are you're nerdy enough to know someone else who would as well. And uh, yeah, it's good talking to you guys and uh, good talking to you, Pierce. Yep, good talking to you, Mac. Bye-bye. Right. Take care.